let's, let's start like this. Let's, let's just take a minute, let's take two minutes and just be quiet. And be available for what God wants to speak into your life this morning. Um, I have a real broad agenda and a lot of things I hope to share and who knows what will come up in the middle of it. But what I have to say really doesn't mean a whole lot, to be honest. It's really, what does God want to say to you through his word this morning? And the only way you're going to capture that and, and somehow invite it into your life if you're aware. So let's take a minute. Let's just be quiet. Let's close our eyes. And this is one of those times when uh, I'd invite you to say, God, what do, you, what do you have for me this morning? What kind of word do I need to hear this morning? How do you want to meet me? Where do you want me to meet me in the midst of, of my story? Whatever you come with this morning that keeps you from being fully present, fully aware of what God wants to do, just in your own heart to say, God, I, I just, I'm putting this down right now. I got stuff I brought. I got stuff I'm anticipating coming up this week. I'm just putting it down and creating a space where I can be here for you. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would minister to us this morning, far beyond what we might even comprehend or think, but meet us in those places where you know we need to be met, and only you uniquely knows that. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, I'm involved in spiritual formation. I run an organization called Theodicy. I am a spiritual director. I'm a missionary to the next generation. My passion are 20 and 30-somethings. Um, we have leaders up and down the West Coast who lead small groups, over 70 of them now. Uh, we got small groups this year in Pretoria, South Africa, and Wellington, New Zealand, and Toronto, Canada, and London, England, and, and all kinds of cities up and from, from Portland all the way to San Diego. Um, my passion is, is next generation, like I said, and over the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of time in coffee houses in Los Angeles and San Diego and Portland and a lot of other places, um, meeting with with 25-year-old kids with purple hair and pierced noses and their dog tied up outside and their skateboard and whatever else. Um, that's that's the territory where I live. Those are the people that, that, that I relate to best, believe it or not. And along the way, I can't tell you how much that I have grown through the whole process. Um, a good example happened a few years ago. I was leading a group of 40 in a coffee house in Santa Cruz. And every Monday night, gather in this coffee house, and we we're halfway through the year, and we had a potluck. And for the, the theme that night, as, as God would have it would be, and you'll, you'll understand this in a minute, was the parable of the lost son. The prodigal son, and the idea of the whole thing was God's incredible, irrational love for us. And during the potluck, it was, rain, it was rainy that night, it was dark, and people set out fantastic food all over the, the, the bar in this coffee shop. And about, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes into the potluck time, uh, a, a homeless guy walks in. 
And he's got his black plastic bags, several of them, over his shoulder and a big beard, and he's soaking wet, and he looked filthy. And he, he came in, and he just sat down over on the side, and he pulls out a laptop, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he's working on his laptop in this coffee house. And I, all my attention went and just fixed on this guy. And I'm thinking, gosh, this guy is so disruptive. He's going to disrupt our whole evening. And we're talking about the unconditional love of God. And, and <laughs> he, he's going to just totally disrupt it. And then I'm thinking, well, what if he gets, what if he gets hostile? What if, I need to tell him to leave. And what if he gets hostile? You know, and I'm thinking in my mind, I'll bet I can beat this guy up. And, and uh, you know, you remember the bigger theme of the day, right? You know, the unconditional love of God. You see where this is going. And, uh, and so my mind is just filled with all this stuff and all these things. Of how am I going to protect this opportunity for us to teach about the unconditional love of God and, and throwing this guy out and just get your stuff and leave and whatever. And a couple, a couple 20-something young ladies, um, they, they went over to the bar and they grabbed plates. And they put food on two different plates and grabbed hot coffee and then they took it over with it to him, and they sat down next to him, and they offered him a meal, and they offered him friendship. And I watched that, and I just started crying. And someone came up and said, well, are you okay? Are you okay? I said, I'm really not okay. There's a big, deep problem in my life. And it's a problem I keep discovering. I don't know about you, but there's such a gap between what I know and theologically, what, I, what I've studied so well, and the gap in my heart, which is what I actually do and what I actually practice. So really, I've had 10 years of extraordinary humility, uh, and it's ongoing, of just continuing to discover, you know, God, how do I really live this out in an honest, authentic way and, and really love people like you love them and not just say that and not just teach that? And so what I'm going to share out of this morning is, is my journey in that. And it's, I don't care about my journey, but I'm going to share it through the context of Genesis chapter 12, first 10 verses, which, have, which is a conversation I have ongoing with a lot of people in coffee shops up and down the West Coast and in small groups and in leadership training and all kinds of context. And what I'm going to say this morning, um, it, it may offend some of you. And if it does, I don't really care. Just know that. There's a fine line between cultural Christianity, where there are just legions of the unjazzed, people that walk through life and God is no more than help me do what I want to do in my life. Make my life more comfortable, make it better. When I'm sick, make me well. When I'm poor, make me rich, and all of that. And, and, and there's a difference between that and the gospel, the, the, the message of how to travel with God in Scripture. And what I'm finding more and more in my experience is, as I get to travel a lot and talk to a lot of people, rarely in churches, usually on streets or in small groups somewhere, is that there's a whole generation bubbling up. And a lot of them are 19, some of them are 25, some are 30, some are 40. But I heard it last week at a men's retreat. I heard it 
the week before in a coffee shop in Santa Cruz. I hear it in San Diego when I'm there and then when I'm downtown in coffee shops there. I hear it all the time and it's, it's people that are beginning to say, you know what? I just know there's gotta be something more. There's gotta be something more than just all this following the rules and, and, and doing these things and that constitutes Christianity. I had a 40 year old investment <laughs> broker last week at a men's retreat. He pulls me aside and he goes, my dad was a pastor. I grew up with this great Christian background. I went to this Christian school and I've been a part of this Christian church for so long, so long. And he just pulls me aside and he whispers it to me like it was illegal or something. He goes, is there more? He goes, I just got to believe there's something more than, than, than just this. I said, why don't you hang on? Tomorrow afternoon we'll take a walk on the beach and we're going to talk about Genesis 12. <laughs> we're going to talk about what it looks like to walk with God. I had this conversation all the time. I was at Mount Hermon a couple of years ago, and I was up until midnight with a, a young guy and, and same kind of background, and he pulled me aside and said, would you talk to me? I just know there's got to be something more. I was with a 19-year-old in San Diego about six months ago, and, and he pulled me aside. I just got to know that there's something more. I go, there's so much more. And even while I, I love the talk about revival in this valley and let's pray for revival, there's not a chance in the world that God would bring revival to this valley. None. And, unless he brings it through the individual human heart that's conformed to his image. Because why should he? And you know what's interesting? Well, that's a great thing to pray for. Revival to pray for out here is, is really not something I ever pray for. What I want is revival in here. Because when that happens, you don't need to pray for revival out here. It'll take care of itself. People will go and love people in ridiculous ways. And they'll start having courage to, 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 to embrace people they would never embrace. And get next to the people who, who stink. And get next to the people who have nothing to offer them back. And love people in creative ways they've never even thought of before. And until that happens, in fact, let's just say it, that's what revival really is. Is the transformation of one human heart at a time. And as that, that, that happens and then people meet together where that's happening and that's going on, try and stop it. Try and stop it. You, you won't. It'll have a, a cultural impact that you can never, never change. Well, don't, like, don't get me going on that. And I, I'm working at the sub-level of the one human heart at a time. And I can tell you miracles that happen every year in the context of 19-year-old girls with tattoos all up and down their arms. And and kids who are 25 and completely, completely upside down, and on and on and on and on. I see it all the time. But I know where it happens. It happens in that decision-making place in the heart where people are, 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 are cutting through that fine edge between cultural Christianity and what it means to really walk with God. I'm going to share some of these principles with you this morning out of Genesis chapter 12. And while this story in Genesis 12 is, is Abram's story, it's not our story, it's Abram's story. So these are promises made to him, and these are comments made to, to Israel uh, through him eventually. But there are principles and values here about God, how God relates to human beings. And these principles and values are the things that we can bring back into our lives. And, and, and it, let me say this, when we do that, the, 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 the text begins to master us. We think, oh, I need to master the text to know the text. You really do need to know what the Bible says. But that's only part one. Part two is then, how does the text master you? 
What questions does it begin to ask you? Because it's very uncomfortable to read scripture when it begins to ask you these honest questions. And it'll push you to the wall. And it'll, it'll cut through all the BS in your life. And it'll get to the core of who you really are if you let it master you. People always say to me all the time in different contexts, I mean, it drives me nuts. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Quit saying that. And, and start asking the question, well, how is he the answer? How is he the answer? And help people figure that out. Half our population has a pornography addiction. Significant number of people in this culture, a third of women by age 18 are sexually abused. One out of six males by age 18 is sexually abused. More than 50% of the emerging generation comes from a divorced home. Do you know what it's like to sit and talk to them in a big group? What do you think trust is like? What do you think conversations about father and the image of father God are like? And you can say all day long, Jesus is the answer. But how is he the answer? And until you get down at the heart level and meet them heart to heart and cry with them and get messy with all the stuff that's going on in their thinking and all the distortions and unpack all that stuff, all you got are platitudes to give people. How is he the answer? And I'm telling you, it's, it's a rolling up your sleeves. <laughs> Literally, it's, it's, it's rolling up your sleeves and, and diving in at that personal level. And that's what I love about this passage in the book of Genesis. That's what I love about Scripture. It'll strip you bare of all your weird, false, cultural Christian ideas. And it will take you to the place where it's the cross or nothing. And somehow I've come to love that, embrace that <laughs> in a big way. And I can't tell you how uncomfortable my life has been for 10 years. And uh, I have every inclination it will get more so. Somehow that's, that's weirdly okay. <laughs> you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Let me just relate a few thoughts to you through here. Here we go, and there's, uh, there's so much here. I'm going to only talk about a few things. But I wish we had a month and we would talk about all of it. Let me read it for you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh, now that Canaanite was in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and from with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the, upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
First sounds like a bunch of Bible talk in some ways. Does to my 20-somethings, does to my 30-somethings. Then we sit with it long enough, we figure out, and we start to parse it and just say, what, is this? what are the principles here? What are the principles here, and how do we bring them down into our life? And we start talking about those, and the conversation goes something like this. It starts out, it says, now the Lord said to Abram. Let's just stop real quick. I, don't wanna, I wish we could talk about this for a, a week, but we only have a little bit of time. So one minute on this point, we'll move on. Would, would you know if God was speaking to you? Because the truth is most people don't. The truth is most people are not attentive. They don't really know how to listen or practice listening to God because they're so stinking busy. They're really busy, and there's a lot of things going on. There's kids and finances and jobs and commuting and all the rest. But to even put yourself in a place to be aware and to be attentive to what God is doing in your life is really hard work. It's the work a farmer does when you till a field and you've got a field full of rocks and stumps and stones and old debris and all kinds of a mess. And to just till that field before you do anything, before you plant anything or do anything, wow, what a lot of work, backbreaking. It's more work, and it's the same kind of work to begin to just create a place in your life where you can listen and be attentive to God. It takes three to six months just, just to begin to hear and, and be aware of what's going on besides just your own, your own tapes and your own stuff. When we talk about how Jesus becomes the answer, we walk with people for a year, and we begin to teach them the discipline of just slowing down and beginning to pay attention and be attentive to the difference between the voice of guilt and shame and busyness in their life and the voice of Jesus Christ and what his invitations are like and how it is to begin to embrace those things. This passage assumes that somebody's listening. The Lord says to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I will show you. Go forth is a big word. It's, it's a Hebrew word. I would tell you what it is but to impress you, but I don't care if you're impressed. <laughs> and and it, it's a word, there are volumes written about it. And it literally says, if we we're to translate it literally in English, it says, it says, it says go, go for yourself to the land that I will show you. What does that mean, go for yourself? Why would they jam in a little extra go for yourself? And it's interesting to read all the rabbinical commentaries on it, and it means something like this. I mean, it means, Abram, put yourself in a place where I can use you. That's the nuance of it. Put yourself in a place where I can use you. It could happen through geography. It could happen through, uh, through a lot of other ways. And then it says, remove yourself from this three-part countdown, from, re- from your country, your relatives, your father's house. Your country, your relatives, your father's house. And this construction in Hebrew happens only two times in the entire Old Testament. The other time is in Genesis 22 when it's with regard to Abram again and with regards to his, his son, Isaac. And there the conversation is, leave your, leave your son, your only son, the son you love. In other words, it's, just, it's a way of saying, hey, this is, this is leave the big picture, but I'm really talking about this, but I'm really talking about this. Leave your father's house. Put yourself in a place where I can use you. And this is going to mean leaving 
something that provides security, comfort, and control, and create a new way of being. Let's just stop and talk about that. How do you bring that principle back down into your life? Let me tell you about Katie. Katie came to uh, one of our, our groups at, uh, at a, a, a spiritual formation group. She was 24 when I met her. She is one of nine pastor's kids out of 40 people. Nine pastor's kids. And everyone had the hell beat into them. <laughs> it was amazing just to see the damage in their lives. And Katie, uh, they have, everyone has a journal every day, 15 minutes. That happens a lot in my life. It's okay. <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes every day. So I'd get Katie's journals back. And this is, this is one way it looks like to put yourself in a place where God can use you. It's not just about geography. It's like put yourself in a place where you know if you're stuck that you need help. Katie knew she needed help, so she signs up for this group. And here in the midst of this group, she turned her journal in. Well, she didn't turn her journal in. For the first three weeks, I got nothing. And until after three weeks, I said, Katie, where's your journals? And she goes, I can't journal. And I go, why? And she goes, I just can't. It's too painful. I said, well, take a shot. She says, I can't. You wouldn't want to read it. I go, I'll read anything. Next week, I get her journals. <laughs> first day one, F God. <laughs> day two, the same thing. Day three. Same thing. Day four, nothing. I, I put an underline. You missed it, hey? Day, day five, day six, day seven. So I turned it. I just wrote on her, great job. Gave it back to her. So she, she came up afterwards. She go, well, how can you say great job? I go, oh, you did a great job. This is excellent. You know, you're, you're, you're beginning to express what's really inside you. That's what this is all about. So she felt like she had permission to say what she really felt after that. Yeah, you can imagine where that one went. And the next week, wow. And the next week, wow. For two months of wow in these journals. It was beautiful. And you know what it is? It's a kid that had just gotten beat up in the church. Beaten up by pastor's expectations to do and be all this stuff and lost her own identity. And she needed a safe place to just say, this is how I really feel about God. Which is she really saying, this is how I really feel about church, about my parents. But you know what? She put herself in a place where God can multiply her life because she was still there, hanging out, and now willing to go for it. A year ago, Robin and I were at an Easter service in Santa Cruz at a civic auditorium, and, and uh, they had uh, a bazillion people, and part of the service was they had people come up on stage whose lives have been changed in the last year, or, or, or in, in a dynamic way, in some way in the last few years. And here's Katie with her husband and her two kids in her arms walking across the stage. I thought, man, and if you knew her today, you'd just say, well, what a, what a, she's a ministry leader in a small group ministry in this church, and she's dynamic as a person. But you know what? She would have sat in a church pew for decades, full of hate and anger if she even showed up at a church, but she needed somewhere to unpack the real. Now, let me just say this to you. What would it look like for you to put yourself in a place where God can use you? And don't give me, you know, God can use me wherever I am, because what an unbiblical premise. You know, there were places Jesus could go that God could not use Jesus in those places. So if that's true for him, I just think it's true for us. I hear that all the time. Well, God can use you anywhere. No, he can't. So don't buy into that. Um, and, but what would it look like for you to put yourself in a place where God can use you? And I'm not talking about geography. 
I'm talking about all kinds of things. You know, are, what are you involved in that keeps you from being used by God? What is that? Your attachment to, to money? Your attachment to images? Your attachment to a relationship you shouldn't be involved in? Your fear, your shame, which has just disembodied you or, or disempowered you? What, what is it? I run into a lot of people, and especially 20-somethings, who are victims, because they've been victimized so much. And when you're a victim, you're, the, you're, you're actually an excellent manipulator <laughs> yourself. And, and a lot of people choose to be victims their whole life. And so do you hold on to that? And it's a really interesting question, isn't it, in John chapter 5, where Jesus meets the man at the pool at the well, right? Do you remember what he asked? Yeah. He says, do you want to get well? He's like, well, what do you think? I've been here 38 years <laughs> trying to be healed. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? Because the answer might be what? Yeah, it might be no. Because if I get well, then I have to take responsibility for my life. I have to forgive the people that have let me down. I have to forgive myself for all the things that I've invested and involved myself in. I have to make new friends. I have to go out and make a plan for my life and actually do something and take action. Do I want to get well? A lot of, a lot of people today that feel the churches of America are, are raising their hand and saying, no, I don't want to get well. Are you kidding me? Can you believe what that would really cost me? Because at least this way, I, I, mean, I, I live in a mess, but it's my mess. I'm familiar and comfortable with it. And I have no problem getting next to those people in coffee shops and one-on-one meetings and lunches and breakfasts and just saying, do you really want to get well? Why, why come to our group and waste your time and my time and everyone else's time? You've got to make some decisions at some point. Who do you want to be and what do you want to be about? I love the question. Put yourself in a place where God can use you. If God isn't using you, chances are really good you're holding on to something that, that keeps him from using you. It's just one lens to look at. Yeah, that's like my life too, I'll tell you. actually done last rites for several people, and I'm not even Catholic, so I, I, I know how to do that. Let me just share a few more thoughts really quick. And this passage is, is such a great place to teach us how to journey with God. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I'll bless you. This passage is full of things God will do. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. And he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. It's something I want you to pay attention to. You see in the first part of this verse, I'll bless those who bless you. That's plural, right? I'll bless those who bless you. And he says, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now it went from plural to singular, and it's one. And a lot of people like to have fun. Oh, that must be Satan and whatever. And Satan never is understood in the Genesis context uh, at all. 
as being an entity, believe it or not, even in the beginning chapters until Scripture later interprets that as being Satan. Um, so it's not part of the Hebrew mindset to say this is Satan. So what does this mean? I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. In short, it's a, he it's a Hebraism. That means this. It's a Hebrew way of just saying, hey, you know what? As you enter into this land, a lot of people are going to be against you, but, but I will level the playing field and I'll be for you. And it's a way of saying this. Here's the principle. I will be enough for you. Stop with that for just a minute. I will be enough for you. And don't answer the question I'm going to ask, but I'd say, do you believe that? This is me. My head will go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. What's my heart going to say? Probably not. God, will you really be enough for me? Uh, this, these are all different names than the real names, but this year, we got Jenny in a small group. Jenny's 27. Jenny's in a small group or Bible study group, and nobody knows that she has a pornography addiction. And Jenny has a void in her life that is so deep and, and so dark uh, that she literally can't live without the draw, the emotional draw of pornography. She's a 27-year-old kid. And so for Jenny... The, the journey this year is Jenny is believing that God will be enough for her, that Christ will be enough for her to fill that void that she's tried to fill in other ways. Well, you're, I need you to come to my house. <laughs> you are, you're the best. I love him. And then I've got Connor. Connor's mid-30s. He's a, he's a young professional, and, and he's a perfectionist. And he is, he's hyper, A-type, overstrung, and, and he is running as fast as he can, and he is VP level at, at 31, 32, and the reason he's so strong and so hyper is inside, he is just desperately afraid of being insignificant and unwanted. And Connor's dad walked out on the family when he was 10, 9, 10 years old, and he was the oldest kid, and he's got to sing inside this void that, that, that he knows what it is to be unwanted. And so he's just running fast. And so be able to take that away from him and say, Connor, you've got to give that to, to the Lord. And you've, here it is. Get ready for this. You've got to trust him to be enough for you in this place. And oh my gosh, the pain that Connor goes through to try and really trust that he can get off his anxiety meds and all his high-performance stuff that's killing him. And trust that God will be enough to fill this void, not his activity and performance. Jenny's trying to fill the same kind of void and, and, and the pain that she goes through of trusting that. But you see, as that takes place, transformation starts to happen in their life. And then I've got Andrea, 58, stage 4 cancer, estranged from both her husbands and all of her kids. And, and she got involved with the Odyssey this year because she didn't want to die alone. It's all she could say. It has no God frame reference, nothing. And, and her story is, is that in these last few months of her life, she wants somebody to teach her how to be forgiven. Can you believe that? She voices it. How, how, how can I be forgiven? And how can I forgive other people? And I said, you're in the right place. You come. Come. We'll walk with you in that. And the, the exchange that she has to make in terms of trusting that God will be enough for her. And now, this is her last spring. She, she's going to die this spring sometime. 
And she's got to trust that God will be enough for her now in her death, let alone in all her process of trying to forgive and be forgiven. And so you watch that messy process and you just say, wow, what does it mean for God to truly be enough for me? What do I fill my life with that I try and fill it with stuff so, so that it's, I'm filling my life myself? What does that look like for you? What would it look like for you? If God was truly enough for you, what could you put down? Anxiety, worry, shame, unforgiveness, anger. Interesting study done at one of the leading Christian colleges on the West Coast seven years ago, six years ago. 85% of all the students there out of several thousand, their lives were characterized by anger, self-hatred, unforgiveness, shame, and guilt. That's about the percentage of people, that, the percentage that I find in local churches where I speak and minister is about the same. That people walk through life bent over like this. It's like, what, what if we really trusted God to be enough for us at the level of, of replacing all that garbage in our lives and learning to live in freedom in him? Again, Jesus is the answer, but how? And it's how you get into that stuff and unpack it and, and put, it, put it away. Then you just carry it. And it's like, why, why do we carry that? We're not meant to, believe it or not. couple more thoughts. I'll bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. In other words, I'll be enough for you in this new place, this new land. And then, so Abram went forth. And this is all about choosing. And we could say a lot about choosing here and what choosing means and what it takes to choose. But you remember in, in Matthew chapter 14 where Peter gets invited to make a choice, you know, to walk on water. And can you imagine what it is to saddle up next to the gunnels of a boat in the middle of the night in a dark storm and to slip your leg over the side and take that first step? And choosing is really hard. And choosing only really happens in community where, where you're gathered around people that give you the courage to choose. Man, do I see crazy stuff. I see Laura, her real name, who's got sleeves, tattoo sleeves on both arms. And... She's got a big tattoo in the middle that, that has an Aramaic phrase. It comes from the New Testament. Talitha kum, little girl arise. And she had it put there because it covers the marks on her arm where she tried to take her life. And, and when you hear Laura's story and you see who Laura is and what her life is about, I sat with her in a small group for a year. And for six months, five months, she didn't say a word. She just had her hair right in the middle of her face. Inside where I never even saw her face, features of her face. So we were on a retreat mid-January. We're sitting around. There's a fire, and there's 25 of these guys. I don't even know why. I just say, "Hey, Laura, tell me the story of your tattoos. What's up with that? Why? Why the tattoos? What, what does that mean to you?" Wow. We heard her story in such a big way. And something happened that night, and she showed up the next meeting two weeks later, and her hair was like out of her face. I'm like, what the heck? And on and on it went. 
And she actually started to smile. I saw her smile after about seven months. And something else changed, and something else changed. And why did that happen? And if you start today, she's a small group leader in San Diego. She's a special ed teacher. A young child, married, has every excuse not to be guiding other people. But she does. Because something happened in her life. What happened? Because she made a courageous choice, really courageous choice, to face what was going on in her life and, and to dive in and do something about it. And I can't encourage you enough to do the same thing. Life is really short, you know. You're not going to be around very long. I'm going to be around less long, probably. Um, make, it, make it count. And Abram, Abram went forth, a courageous choosing. And as the Lord had spoken to him. Let me just stop there. As the Lord had spoken to him. This is one of the places where the next generation is way more intuitive and smart than our generation. Because what this means to us, you know, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken. In other words, Abram had faith. And so as I talk to people a lot, I just say, well, what does it mean to have faith? And then I hear this in counseling situations a lot. People say, okay, I started this business and I had faith that God would, would make it go. Or I had faith that this was the right relationship and now it's a mess. Or I had faith that, that um, God wanted us to build this house and whatever for ministry reasons and now we lost our house. Or I had faith and on it goes. And I always say the same thing. I'm not very nice. So this is the truth. I just say, why in the world would you have faith in that? I go, you got duped. You should never have had faith in that. And the fact that you ended up upside down like a turtle on its back is your own fault. Go look in the mirror and just say, I'm a dummy. See, I'm not, I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm nicer than that, but not, <laughs> but, not, but, uh, but not very often. But, you know, we have this cultural thing in our lives where it says, if we have faith, then we can do anything, right? I want you to read the Bible. I mean, just for a minute here. So Abram went forth, okay, here it is, as the Lord had spoken to him. In other words, here's what faith means. Faith is choosing to take God at his word. Faith is taking God at his word. It means whatever God has said, you can have faith in that and need to have faith in that. 1 Samuel 17 is one of the great examples of this. I listen to seven or eight sermons, five or six sermons a week online, different people, different things. And I, I come across craziness a lot and it drives me nuts. And um, part of it's my arrogance. Part of it is I don't know. But, you know, in 1 Samuel 17, we get the David and Goliath story. And I heard this five, six weeks ago. You know, and the, the upshot of it is, you know, um, you can conquer your giants. You know, if you have enough faith, you can conquer whatever giants you have in your life. You know, if it's finances, if it's this, if it's that, you can conquer your giants just like David did. And it's like, wow, there's a little hand in my heart. Now it's a fist. And it just says, that's heresy. Did you know that, by the way? That's heresy. The Bible says nothing like that. Because when you read 1 Samuel 17, you get this phrase. And in Hebrew narrative, when you get these repeated phrases, they don't have a way to underline or highlight in bold or yellow, so they repeat. Listen to this phrase that comes back three times in the context of this passage and see, see if you can spot what it says. In one, one verse 26, it says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that he should taunt the armies of the living God. I don't know, 10 verses later, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. This is words coming out of David's mouth. Here's, here it is again, you know, 11 verses later. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, God of armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. In this entire scene, this battle that he's engaged in with this description is of this giant of a man as tall as a, backboard, uh, a basketball backboard, as big as a Volkswagen, and armed to the teeth. And into this scene comes a scrawny little 17-year-old kid who's like a pizza delivery guy. He's bringing bread and cheese, it says in the text. Okay? He's bringing bread and cheese. And he steps into the scene, and there's a whole army, and the army is completely afraid to go and confront this other army. And the reason he has faith is because he's the one person who is willing to take God at his word, who 200 years earlier had promised this land to the Israelites. And he, David knew that. And he knew this was not their land, that God had already said this was true. And he's the one guy, everybody knew it, he's the one guy who was willing to say, I'm willing to take God at his word. What does that look like for you, to take God at his word? Well, the truth is that a lot of people have no idea what God has said that's true. I ask a lot of people, and I say, what has God said that's true, that you could take him at his word? And they just look at me like, I don't know. I've only been in the church for 30 years. I don't know. And, 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 and uh, that's the look. I know the look, by the way. Um, and, and I am a little sarcastic because that's a world I live in. But what does God say that's true? That you can take him at his word. Because that's all you got, by the way, is what he has said. Things like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I walk through the beginning parts of the, of the first chapter of Ephesians with people who are stuck in self-hatred and don't have any sense of identity. And said, so, did you know that God has adopted you that means you're his son or daughter do you know what that means to be be sought after and drawn into a forever family do you know what it is to be chosen that's another one of those words or predestined or even sealed which means nobody can ever take you out of his hands that stuff's true this stuff is really rock bottom true you know all the other stuff where you're attaching god's name to your junk you know don't get too excited about any of that that's just you. <laughs> but the stuff that's true, hang on to it. What does it look like for you to take God at his word? That's my life. Just meeting with people, trying to help them understand what God has says it's true. And helping them figure out how do, I, how do I align my life with what is fundamentally true. And not just cultural precepts that we bless and somehow in the name of God. I hear it all the time. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have heard the craziest renditions of that. You might have a tattoo of that. I don't know. If you do, go get it cut off. Because what, what people baptize themselves with this little verse they pin to themselves. I can do all things through Christ. And, and the context is what? Do you know the context of that passage? Hmm. Paul just got done saying, you know what? I, God has given me the power and the strength and the courage to live with wealth. And oh my gosh, is that hard. 
And he's also given me the power and the courage and the strength to live with abject poverty. Oh my gosh, is that hard. And then he sums it all up and says, you know what? I can do all things, which refers to those two things. I can live in wealth. I can live in abject poverty. God has given me the power and the strength and the courage to know how to live with either one. That's what all things means. The disciples got the living heck beat out of them. Suffered in ways that you and I can't even imagine. Lived without. <laughs> and yet, it's amazing in American culture how we tattoo that on our arms and pin it to our chest as if we run around and gives us license to, 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 to name and claim whatever we want. Do you see why I say there's not a chance in the world revival of any kind is going to come to our valley or our country or anything else until it comes to our lives? Our lives really get real in the gospel sense. Do you understand what I mean by that? That we can bifurcate, we can differentiate between these different ways of being and live on this vital edge of what it is to, believe, to be alive in God. Here's the last thing I would say out of this passage in Genesis 12, which kills me because I would love to say more. Verse 6, here we go. Are you ready for this? You're not going to like this. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the Oak of Moreh, and now the Canaanite was in the land. Now you need to understand this real quick. Acts 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 2 tells us that Abram was originally told back here in, in Ur, where he came from, maybe 60 years ago, because he's 75 at this time. He was told then to leave Ur and to go. <laughs> Didn't say where, you know. It's called dependence. I'm not going to tell you where. Just go. And he ended up here in Haran, Bakersfield, you know, uh, like a truck stop. <laughs> and, 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 and he was there. And by the way, his father, Tara. Uh, we, we learn in scripture, comes from a home where pagan gods were worshipped. So he comes from a home that's not the home you want to replicate. Isn't that interesting that the grandfather of the people of Israel comes from a pagan home? And God says, you know, <laughs> really, he says, you know, leave your country, your relatives, your father's house, create a new way of being. And, 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 and so here he is in Haran, and, and he waits till his father's dead, and now he launches out again. Second time. This is the second time he's called to keep moving. You ever have a gap between when you thought God was calling you to something and then a lot of time and years and space goes by and you wonder what the heck happened? Like a bottom fell out of my God life. And then God comes back again and says, hey, remember? <laughs> keep moving. I still have a dream and a design for your life. Keep moving. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your circumstances are. I still have a dream and design for your life. Believe, believe. So he comes to him, and then he says, now head out again. I'm not going to tell you where. Just get going. And when we get there, I'll say stop. And I'll say, hey, you know what? Abram X marks his spot. And so he gets to be exactly where God wants him to be. Exactly. And God says, he says, stop. And the stop comes in verse 7. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram. And he said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land. And then you get this response. We won't have time to talk about that too much. An altar. But listen to the description of the land. Shechem, religious headquarters for a major pagan cult. 
The Oak of Moray, we learn in another passage in Scripture, probably the, the Oak of pagan worship. And then it throws in the little thing that Canaanite was in the land. What does that sound like? What does that place sound like to you? It's like God says, this is the perfect place to be. You know what I mean? This place stinks. I mean, it's full of opposition. It's full of unrest. It's, it's full of um, um, antagonism. Uh, this place is nothing but struggle and nothing but resistance. There's nothing about this place that's easy. There's nothing about this place that is anything but resistance and opposition. And God says, hey, you know what? After all this journey, through all these years, the perfect place I want you is right here. What would be going on in your mind if God did that to you? The, the kicker comes in verse 10 where it says, and Abram had to go to Egypt because there was famine in the land. So he's not even there for very long. Well, what questions would go on in your mind? You know what they'd be like? Is God really good? Is he really good? That God would, this is what he wants for me? That life is so hard, I have to struggle? And I've got opposition and resistance? Is he really good? That's probably the primary question of the American church. I won't tell you what I say in response to that. <laughs> and, and the second question would be, did I really hear God? <laughs> I hear that a lot. Did I really hear God? Like, could this really be it? Because I thought that my car payments would get taken care of and that I'm going to live in this kind of house and that I thought I'd be married by now and I thought that my life would be all lined up and I thought I'd have a career by now or I thought my kids wouldn't go sideways by now or I thought that whatever it is, and God says, you know what? Here's the reality. This is the reality of, of Scripture. This is the reality of the gospel. God says, I got a lot of things for you to do in the middle of a very negative, oppositional, resistance-oriented world. And I need you to be an agent of transformation in that world. Stop your whining. <laughs> That's what I think he would say. This is hard. There's nothing easy about it. And I never promised it would all be fine. All I promised is I'd be with you in the midst of it. God doesn't promise to fix us. He just promises to be present in the midst of our unfixedness. Get that. Really understand that and get that. And then it, and then it means to live with vigor and to just to, to be gritty and just say, well, this is what it means to live the gospel. But somehow we've gotten attuned in cultural Christianity to believe in this other theme that goes along with democracy and capitalism that says, I'm supposed to have all this stuff and my life is supposed to be measured at this level and if it's not, something's wrong and guess whose fault it is? I don't think, honestly, there's a week goes by, I don't hear that. God gets blamed for somebody. Somebody's marriage or somebody's this or somebody's that. There's not a week that goes by, I don't hear that. I, I'm not a good guy to say that to, by the way, in terms of, let's just talk about scripture and, and what it says. Let's talk about the example of the disciples. The last thing I'll say is this altar business. If we had time, we'd talk about how there's this pattern here repeated in Hebrew, and it's build an altar, and then the Hebrew word is pull up stakes. And then he built an altar, and then he pulled up stakes. Different words in English, but those are the Hebrew words, pull up stakes. And there's this rhythm of, you know what? Build an altar. <laughs> Consecrate yourself to God, 
and then live with detachment. Don't attach yourself to too much. Build an altar, detach yourself from things. And the altar is this. That sounds like Bible language to me in the sense of when I use that term, a lot of people's eyes glaze over, build an altar. And they're thinking, man, I already got a backyard barbecue. I've got, you know, and what does that mean to build an altar? Here's all it means. This is all it means. It means establish a place to come back to when you're lost. And when you're alone, when you're in the dark, establish a place to come back to. I saw this three years ago, fishing with a friend. And we were in a pickup way early in the morning, before light, crossing a farmer's field and it had woods. And we were going down to the river to drop his drift boat into the river to go fly fishing. And as we were crossing over these, these roaming hills, we got close to the river and we got this little wooded area and he had his dog in the back of the truck. I've heard of this before <laughs> in different ways. That this dog saw a pheasant. And, and, and the dog, as a bird dog, jumped out of the back of the truck and just took off into the woods. And, and, and you could see pheasants flying up here and here. And you could hear the dog barking until you couldn't hear it anymore. And the guy I was with slowed down, then he stopped. He's just, whatever, my dog. And then he got out and took off his coat and he threw his coat on the ground. And I just said, what's that? And he goes, you'll see. So we went down, we put the drift boat in, and we went down and dropped his truck off and came back. We took off. We are gone for 10, 12 hours. That time of year, we came back, it's pitch black. And when we came back, we were going over those <laughs> roaming hills into the little valleys, and we came up by that wooded area. And we came around a bend, and there his headlights of his truck caused these two little red reflections <laughs> up ahead. And there, sitting on that coat, was a dog that sat like a Coke bottle on a coaster, just waiting. I said, how does that work? And he said, he knows that when I throw down my coat, that's where he needs to wait. That that's how he's going to get home. That that's safety, that that's, that's where goodness happens. And I said, he'll wait for days until I come back for him. And this whole idea, this Hebrew idea of altar, and you strip it all down from all its stuff, is that. It's a place where you know when God throws down his coat, when God speaks to you and something happens, and it might only happen a few times in your life, I don't know. But when he throws down his coat, come back to it. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is our altar now. Interesting language, huh? Come back to it. When you're in the dark, you don't know where else to go, and you're lost, you want to get home, come back to it. Come back to it. Come back to it. I just said, do you know how to get back there? This is me. You want to talk about revival? Do you know how to get back there? Do you know how to get home? Do you know where to wait? Where real life is going to happen? Where you're going to be part of a bigger thing that's going on in the world. Do you know how to get home? Most people don't know where to wait. They're just so busy doing stuff. Man, I'm so busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. I go, man, you're a busy Christian, huh? Where do you listen to God? Where are you attentive and where do you deal with him in your heart?
I mean the big stuff, the deep stuff, daily. What does that happen? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'd say it to you. Where do you wait? When God throws his cup down. Do you know where it is? Do you know where to wait? Well, a lot more I could say, but I won't. I was, we'll, um, I'd wrap it up by saying this. I hope. I, I don't care if you hear anything from me. I hope you hear something from God's word. And somehow will... I hope inspire you. I hope it encourages you. I hope it challenges the heck out of you to think in different ways, in new ways or reaffirm old ways that are true of how to walk with the living God in the 21st century. There is an unbelievable uprising across this country right now in a remarkable way that is so powerful for the reality of God in this world. It is remarkable, and it's fresh, and it's new, and it's powerful. But it's coming from underneath, and you see it bubble up all kinds of places. And, and if you want to be a part of it, if you want to join into what God's doing, you've got to dial into what those real questions are and begin to get involved in what they really mean. Because, wow, there's something happening. And I would just say, don't miss it. Be a part of it. It's very powerful and very real. Let me close with a word of prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you have not left us to bob up and down on the black seas of our culture, to be drawn just by consumerism, to be drawn simply by the different gods of our culture that tease us into investing our lives in ways that mean nothing for eternity, but that you have invaded culture, and in so doing, you invite us to life, to real life, to life with you, with a living God that, that not only transforms us. I thank you for that. I, I thank you for the invitation, and I pray in some way that me personally would be... <laughs> would figure out in new ways how to respond in honest ways. I pray for this beautiful church and for these faithful people who have labored long and labored with love because they love you. And I pray that you would affirm them through your Holy Spirit, that you would not only guide them and teach them through their pastors that love them and their pastors that give their life to them, but God, also through your Spirit, that you would come up underneath and that you would you would shake out anything that does not belong here in any way so that your purposes can ultimately come to fruition in each of our lives. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.